Good morning to you all. I trust you're well awake. I, I know you are after that singing, but now is not the nap time just because Jobin's not up here getting us all excited, right? Uh, with that being said, uh, go and turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, and you can guess that will be there every time. We open the Word of God this week, and I'll make it clear in just a minute. So let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to convict us, and then we'll go to the Word, and we'll actually talk about what I just mentioned. Father in heaven, thank you that you are God, and you are God alone. Thank you, Lord, that your Word is powerful, and that it's able to change us, and that you desire to change us. So, Lord, I'm praying that this morning you would have your perfect way in our lives, Lord, I ask, as always, if I say anything not guided by you, that you would, in your grace and and gentleness, wipe it out of our minds. But Lord, whatever is from you, embed it on our hearts that we might be eternally changed. So Lord, we pray these things for your glory and in your name. Amen. All right, so let's read. Uh, We'll go back to verse 7, and we'll read from 7 to 14. Just for a bit of context, and we're not going to get to 14 in this session, but we'll still read it. Verse 7, but whatever gain, plural, I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as you're taking notes, let me go ahead and give you three things we look to glance at. The third one we're not going to look at very much, I don't think. But the three things that we're going to see in this passage, and specifically verse 12, is a dissatisfaction... And when I say dissatisfaction, I'm talking about a dissatisfaction with the present, and that that, that will be very clear. Then we're going to see a dedication, a dedication to a pursuit. And then finally, we're going to see a drive, a drive inside Paul to persevere. What was Paul's drive to hang in there? And again, I think that aspect will be an encouraging place for us to leave off. But let's start off with this dissatisfaction. Now, this is exactly what I was referring to when I said that within the church, I think there's something missing. And what I believe is missing is a dissatisfaction. Now, it's interesting because yesterday we talked about rejoicing, right? And we talked about, uh, I mentioned contentment because in chapter 4, Paul talks about contentment uh, extensively. But why would we talk about contentment and why would we talk about joy and now preach dissatisfaction as a good thing. And yet I actually believe that dissatisfaction with the present world is actually one of the key components to actually living in joy. And uh, we'll we'll discuss this. All right, let's take it from another angle. T.S. Lewis, he said this, and I want you to think about it from a perspective of, of dissatisfaction. He said that babies get hungry, therefore there must be such a thing as food. Ducks like to swim, therefore there must be such a thing as water. Mankind 
has sexual desires and therefore there must be such a thing as sex. But if I find in myself something that nothing in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. What's he, what, what's he getting at? What he's saying to us is we were created for more than what we're tasting right now. As you get to know the Lord Jesus Christ, as you see the beauty he's placed us in and placed around us, what we recognize is there is something called a holy dissatisfaction and the greatest enemy or one of the greatest enemies to a holy dissatisfaction is to be satisfied with this world. You are not intended to be fulfilled in the things the world can offer you. Now we look for fulfillment there. And oftentimes that's why uh, we see the world just going to more and more extremes because the last thing did not fulfill. Where is suicide the highest? Suicide is the highest among the rich and among the famous. Why? Because they actually got what they thought would bring satisfaction and it didn't. Now, spiritually speaking, we also need to have a holy dissatisfaction. And notice what Paul says in verse 12 beginning. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul immediately, he's going to go back again and he's going to say the same thing basically in verse 14 and 13 that, um, or, or verse, uh, 14, 15, yeah, verse, six, verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have uh, attained. And, um, and he goes on to just talk about how he's not yet there. So I want us to see that this dissatisfaction is because what Paul sees in his mind, I believe, is 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, and that's where uh, John says, behold, What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called sons of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. Therefore, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. What was Paul seeing when he says, not that I have already obtained this? What was he talking about? He said that I might know him, the power of his resurrection, share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul sees what John says. Paul sees what the goal of our ultimate eternal life is. That is to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember that example with the man sculpting out a piece of wood. What the Lord's doing right now is we're we're in the factory. We're in in the mines. That's why we sow in tears. And we will reap in joy. Why? Because joy comes in the morning. And we know about the morning. That morning when we wake up in His presence and like Him. And so what Paul is seeing here is he's not seeing, okay, I'm good enough to go. He says, I don't look like Christ. And if I don't look like Christ, I'm going to have to say, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. I, I wonder, do you pray a prayer that sounds something like this? Lord, Teach me to live in such a way where as little change as possible will be necessary on the day I see you. Think about it. That's not a selfish prayer. I'll tell you why. You do not need anybody called Nate Bramson. If you see any of Nate, you're not getting anything good And you're not getting anything you need. Period. In me dwells no good thing. But as I allow the Holy Spirit piece by piece, and man, we're so far off, but piece by piece, what happens? You start to see Christ in me, and I see Christ in you. And that's what the world needs. And so when Paul is saying this, I believe it's not just a plea for his own heart, his own life, 
but it's also because of those around him, those he loves. Let, let, let me suggest something else to you, because chances are you don't think about it this way, but I think it'll be encouraging. When you get up before your friends get up because you want to spend time in the Lord's presence, when you choose to obey the Lord in secret things that nobody else knows about, what's going on is Christ-likeness. You're becoming more and more like him. But this is something until recently I never even considered. When I get up in the morning and when I spend time with the Lord and when I seek to know him more, usually I think I'm doing it for myself. I'm doing it because I want to know the Lord. But recently the Lord's impressed on my heart. He says, Nathan, you're you're not just getting up so you can know me. You're getting up so others can know me. Because as I transform you from glory to glory into the image of my son, others are going to see Jesus and not you. I think that's why it's beautiful in Acts chapter 4 verse 13. And you remember Peter and John after the man was healed and they were arrested and then they were put before the Sanhedrin and they're on trial. And the famous verse in verse 12 where they say there's no other name under heaven by which any man can be saved. And then in verse 13, there's a commentary about what the people thought. They were astounded by Peter and John because they knew that they were untrained men. But there's one more phrase. But they knew that they had been with Jesus. And so when Paul's saying, not that I've already obtained, I want to ask us a couple questions before we look at why this is not our dissatisfaction. And the first question would be this. Do you sense a great dissatisfaction in your life? No, no. Don't, don't say, yeah, like, I want to be more like Christ. That's not what I mean. I mean a dissatisfaction. Like, are you genuinely, like, bothered and irritated that you don't look more like Christ? Is this something where you say, man, like Paul, I press on. I have not obtained. I must, I must, I must become more like Jesus Christ. There is nothing else to pursue above that one thing, which that one thing we'll talk about later. Well, let's look at what gets in the way. I want to make a list. And as you make this list, let me challenge you. Not all of these things are going to be you. But chances are at least two to four will be you. So let the Holy Spirit convict you and maybe highlight it or circle it or do something. And let the Holy Spirit show why these things are in your life and what idols have taken the place of the pursuit of Christ-likeness. The first thing I would suggest to you is simply complacency. Complacency. And what is complacency? Complacency is uh, being content with something less than holiness. Complacency is being content with something that's not quite Christ-like. Now, we could give a lot of illustrations to this, but take whichever one you want. You can take your speech. What does it say about our speech in the Word of God? One thing I believe is we are to frame everything in our life by the Word of God. It says uh, in Hebrews 11... Uh, verse 3, I believe, uh, it is verse 3, where it, it says the worlds were framed by the word of God. If the world was framed by the word of God, chances are it'd be nice if your life was framed by the word of God. It'd be nice if your speech was framed by the word of God. It'd be great if your love was framed by the word of God. And so, what would it look like if my speech, being framed by the word of God, was not complacent? Well, it means I wouldn't settle for anything less than pure holiness. That means that anytime I see unkind words come out of my mouth, anytime there's complaining coming out of my mouth, by the way, you know what complaining is? I'll define it for you. Complaining is to boldly declare to everyone around you that your God's not good. When you complain, that's what you just did. My God's not very good. (laughs) Just want you to know. When you worry, you're saying, my God might not be good in the future. Just want you to know. That's worry. It really is. It's disgusting. Jesus really doesn't ever go three times in a row, don't commit adultery, don't commit adultery, don't commit adultery. But he does say, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, three times in one passage. It's serious, wicked business. So, what would it look like 
to not be complacent in my speech. It means that I would be dissatisfied until every word that comes out of my mouth pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. It means anything less than pure holiness is unacceptable. That's not Christ-like. Now hang on. This is not about you trying harder. This is not about you like saying, okay, I'm going to resolve not to say anything bad. You'll just be exhausted. It's actually about getting to know him, like we talked about last night. It's to actually experience him, not know more about him, but to let the circumstances of your life taste who he is, taste his attributes, taste his faithfulness. And I don't know about you, but when I have a really good friend, I I really want to please them. I want to say the things that encourage them. I want to build them up. I want to make sure that they are comfortable. I want to make sure they're taken care of. And how much more the Lord Jesus Christ, when we know him, when we know the power of his resurrection, which we don't really know fully yet, when we know what he's done for us, it seems the least, our reasonable service, that we would present our mouth as a living sacrifice, our body as a living sacrifice. Complacency. Is complacency in your life? Are you content right now? You're saying it's good enough? If it's not Christ-like, let's not accept it. Moving on. Number two. Comparison. Comparison. Oh, what a danger comparison is. You see, you could... You could look at your speech, and you could say, well, you know, honestly, I, I know, like, you know, Brother George here, I'm sure, I'm sure most of the things that come out of his mouth are, are kind and encouraging to you all. But, you know, he could easily find an example here and just say, hey, I think my speech is better than so-and-so. And what are we comparing ourselves to? We're comparing ourselves to a body of dust that's going to return to dust. We're comparing ourselves to someone whose righteousness is as a filthy rag, a soiled menstrual cloth, and we're saying, I'm a little better than that. What, you're not as soiled? Comparison in and of itself is a rejection of God's holiness. And I wonder, is there somewhere in our life where we are comparing an attribute of Christ to another human being. See, when God calls us to be holy, he's calling us to be set apart. But let me explain holiness for a second here. I, I want you to understand that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that's wrong, okay? So this is a wrong statement. God is holier than me. You say, whoa, that sounds like a good statement. No, no, no. It's a wrong statement. God is holy, I am not. It's not a scale. It's not like there's a a long line and I'm here and God's down here. That'd be God is holier than me. God's not holier than me. God is holy, holy, holy. I'm not. And my only holiness is in Christ. But in Christ, I've been set apart now. In Christ, I've been placed aside. I've been called to a holy living. Now my holiness is the Lord. But what's happening here? When I start to compare, I've completely forgotten my identity. In fact, think about this. What are we going to see in the next verse? He says, one thing I do, I press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say he's straining every nerve. Okay, like if he's straining, and again, we'll get to that later, but, but if this is his focus, You know what his focus is not? His focus is not someone else. I'll give an illustration of this from Colossians chapter 3, all right? Colossians chapter 3. So here's the deal. Why don't you just uh, stand right here? And and in Colossians 3 verse 1, it says, Since then we've been raised with Christ. Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Set your mind on things above, not things on the earth. Okay, pause. If I'm setting my mind on things above, if I'm seeking the things that are above, if I'm looking to the things that are above, here's the problem. 
You're representing the world. Whatever eternity is represented there. It is absolutely impossible for me to look at both things at the same time. They're polar opposites. And when, get this, I want you to write this down. I want you to think about this. When you compare yourself to any other human being, I can guarantee you, you are no longer looking at Jesus Christ. See, I I can't look there and look there. If I'm looking at you and how you're performing, and that's my comparison, I no longer am looking at Christ Jesus at all. So, now the application, thank you, the application is actually quite easy. When you look at your life, any area of your life that you're being convicted of as sin, I want to challenge you, don't look at culture, don't look at Christian culture, don't look at church culture, don't look at Malayali culture, don't look at any kind of Indian culture, don't, don't look at that as, am I doing this? Don't look at any of that as a measure that you are to follow. Go to the Word of God and say, what does the Word of God say? What is, Christ, what is Christ-like? And that is your focus, and that is your aim. And that's what Paul saw. Because I can pretty much guarantee you that Paul, if he had compared to others, he would have been very satisfied with where he was at. I don't know why it's not brushing against anything. I apologize for that. So we've got complacency, and we've got comparison. Now there's something else that I really think is important, and that is control. Control. Number three, control. Now, what do I mean by this? I'm going to give you a definition of compromise that might seem a little bit different. But I want you to think about it. Compromise is to change the question to fit your answer. Compromise is to change the question to fit your answer. We do this with the Word of God a lot, brothers and sisters. We start out with what we want, and then we make God fit into it. We start out with our dreams and our plans, and then we add God to it. I did that with basketball. I talked about that last night. Oh, believe me, I wasn't rejecting God, but I wasn't honoring Him as Lord either. You see, I had my plans, and I said, this is what I'm going to do, and God, I want to live for you. So I'm going to play basketball, and I'll make you part of it. I'll talk about you in post-game interviews. Uh, I'll make sure that I'm really clearly a Christian. That's great. That's fine. Many basketball players do that, and I'm sure they glorify God greatly. But in my life, I don't believe God had called me to play basketball. I had simply added God to my plans. How often is that our form of compromise? We start with the answer we want and then write the question to fit the answer we have. I wonder if that's why we're so complacent and content with where we're at right now and there's no dissatisfaction in our life. You actually think you have the right question because you like your answer. And so you don't even know you're dissatisfied. You're not dissatisfied. You don't even realize you're off the mark. All right. Let, 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 let's talk about this for a second, and, and please, I, I pray the Holy Spirit will lead, okay? Um, I, I, that's why I pray every time if I say something not guided by Him, that He'll wipe it out of our minds, right? And, and I, I'm also, I'm compelled to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. And, and one way that I think we do this, my friends, and I think Paul, when he's referring to um, what's happening before, uh, as in like when, when he gets down here saying, Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider I have made it my own. One thing I do, forgetting that which lies behind. What's he talking about? Forgetting that which lies behind. I think all the things he already mentioned, the things we discussed yesterday morning, the things about his pedigree, his, the people group he was from, all his piety, whatever the case is. Okay, think about this for a second though. What gets in the way when it comes to compromise, when it comes to having the, the right answer but the wrong question, I think one of our big things is actually legalism. I really do. And again, I, I'm not looking for anybody's vote. I'm not running for any office. I stand before the Lord and I have to be faithful. But when you go through the New Testament, you find that legalism is often what drowns 
the church. Now, don't get me wrong. Do not mistake obedience and legalism as the same thing. It's not. In fact, I believe that when we're not legalistic, we'll be far more obedient. But do we sometimes hold so strongly to one perspective that may or may not even be a biblical practice, let's say a church practice, to the degree where now when someone violates that one thing or when somebody's not on the same page as us, we forget the greatest commandment. We don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength. Why? Because we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. Why? Because now out of our mouth is coming angry words. And why? Because we have bitterness. And why? Because now we're gossiping about that person. And, and why? Because we started with compromise. We had the answer we wanted, and we made all the questions fit it. Legalism's dangerous, my brothers, my sisters. And this is what Paul's just been addressing. Those were the dogs he was talking about. And so we must be very careful. If we are going to have this attitude of Paul saying, not that I've already obtained, that requires humility. I'm not saying don't be fully obedient to the word of God, but what I am suggesting is that I am the first person that needs to change. And let the Holy Spirit be the one to tell you the same thing. May we always be the ones desiring to more clearly demonstrate his character Compromise. Compromise gets in the way. So we have complacency. We have comparison. We have control. We have compromise. There's another one. This one I'm not going to spend long on at all, but we condone. What do I mean by condone? We try to condone sins. In other words, there's certain sins that we have, and we say, you know what? It's okay. It's not really that bad of a sin. Oh, I hear this a lot. I already mentioned a couple of them. Worry, complaining. Almost like people say, you have the right to complain about that. Oh, I don't. I don't have the right to complain about anything. I've been saved. I've been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus Christ redeemed me from death. I don't have the right to complain about anything. I'm, not enti- I'm entitled to hell, like I told you already. That's it, and he saved me from that. There's no, there's no exception. Worry. Anxiety. Now, when anxiety hits your life, don't feel condemned, but let's be convicted. I talked about my own life, how I, I struggle, I've struggled with anxiety in many ways. Not that I've already obtained, but I'm not going to roll over and play dead either. There's a refocusing that has to go on. I can condone so many sins in my life. You know, now I've been... Uh, I've gone through some painful accusations in my past. And they always came from Christians, by the way. And sometimes it took a really long time for that person to come out and say, I made up the whole story. But it was really painful. And sometimes people would even tell me, man, you have the right to just just, ignore that person or just cut that person out of your life. I know it sounds psychologically like a really good thing to do. But it's not what Jesus Christ did. Yeah, sometimes people are abused. And when they're abused, we say, man, you don't have to forgive that. Really? Am I going to condone unforgiveness because somebody hurt me? You say, you don't know what abuse is like. I have been physically abused multiple times in my life while living in the Middle East. And it was really hard for me to love again the men of the Middle East. But I want to tell you, That forgiveness is not an option when you come to the cross. You forgive as you've been forgiven, not because they deserve it. When I say I forgive you, I'm not even looking at you. I'm looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm seeing how I've been completely forgiven. In the light of that forgiveness, you're automatically forgiven. How can I be forgiven such a great debt and not take you blind in your sin who happened to reciprocate that blindness by affecting me? And not issue the forgiveness I've tasted. We preach the gospel when we obey the word entirely. Let's not condone sin. Let's not pretend like there's an exception for your life. Let's not pretend that your life is some kind of just absolutely abnormal. I'm not saying you're not hurting. What I am saying is the word of God's true. The grace of God is sufficient. And if Jesus said it, he meant it. Let's not condone sin. 
A couple more. Comfort. Comfort. How often does comfort get in the way of being dissatisfied? We get into such a rut in our world today, and, and you know, it does not change between a city like Bangalore that has a whole lot compared to a village over in West Africa that's, you know, they're living in small little huts and they're going to the well five kilometers away to draw water in the morning. I'm telling you, the heart of man has a comfort zone that it seeks and it wants to stay there. It wants to grow just lukewarm to the things around. And this is exactly what we see in the churches of Revelation, specifically in Laodicea. It says, you're not, you're not cold. You're not hot. You're just lukewarm. Why? They thought they had everything. And we've got to come back to that point of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 2 to 4, where, where Paul says again that we groan in our inward man. We long for something more. We're not content with the way things are. Why? We were created for something else. Let me ask you, brothers, sisters, please, just be honest to the Lord. You don't even have to be uh, like saying anyone else is honest before Him. Have you grown comfortable? Are you comfortable in a world that crucified Christ? Are you comfortable in a world where Jesus promised if you follow him, you'll be hated? Does this world seem like your home? You see, when we get comfortable, we get satisfied. And when we get satisfied, we don't do what Paul just says. Not that I've already obtained. This is not it. I'm not there. I'm not home. I'm going to run. I'm going to press on. I'm going to strain every nerve. And I'm going to go until I reach the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I pray for a church that's dissatisfied. I pray for a church that's dissatisfied with injustice like we mentioned last night, but not injustice that creates a lot of social justice, injustice that brings the gospel into every corner of society saying, I know you're hurting, but I got really good news. Can we hang out? Letting them know that there is a solution for their pain. There is a solution for their soul. There is hope for this broken, hurting world. If the church was dissatisfied, I believe we would have a church on fire evangelizing and reaching every soul on the planet. But we're satisfied. Why do I say that? Let's just take your business, wherever you work. If you're a student, that's your business. Office, that's your business. If you stay at home, that's your business, all right? Now, the stay-at-home ones, you might have an exception here in the sense that you'll be like, yeah, I got that done. But let's just ask about your office. Does everybody clearly know the gospel where you work? In your classroom, does everybody clearly know the gospel? Have you built relationships with them? I would suggest we're so comfortable with our style of living and with our faith being a private faith. It's personal, but it's not private. You can't carry a cross in privacy, okay? We're comfortable. And because we're comfortable, we're not dissatisfied. Are you dissatisfied that souls are going to hell? Like legitimately dissatisfied? One Christmas I invited, well, obviously before I was married, because I've never had a a Christmas where I've been married. Um, So a few years ago in Niger, I invited all these single guys to my house for Christmas morning. And uh, and uh, some Nigerians and and Americans. And instead of reading the Christmas story, for whatever reason, I don't know what, what the inspiration was that day, I guess the Holy Spirit, but we went to Revelation uh, 20, and we read verses 11 to 15, the great white throne judgment. And we found ourselves literally just weeping before the Lord for the souls of our neighborhood, that here we are celebrating the birth of a Savior, but a Savior they've rejected. And it just became this incredible burden of just, they've got to know. And they can, they can choose to reject, but... I just wonder, like, why is that not my heart all the time? Why am I not constantly burdened when I see a soul walk by and think, uh, like, are, are they, are they going to spend eternity with the Lord? Do they even know that that's an option? Like, do they know that there's something other than, uh, than, than, than just ignorance, that there's, that there's something other than just uh, hoping? We're so satisfied. Paul says, not that I've already obtained. I'm pressing on. So what else? I'm going to, this next one, I'll, 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 I'll just end with this one. The last one I'll give is there's confusion. 
confusion. Confusion keeps us from being dissatisfied. An example of confusion that I would give you is uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And when you get there to 2 Timothy 4, um, in verse 10, Paul talks about one of his co-labors, a man named Demas. Now, when I think about being confused, I think about how often, uh, it kind of goes along with being comfortable, but it's a, a bit different. Um, Demas followed Paul. Demas served with Paul. We see a couple other times where Demas is mentioned as a fellow prisoner. He's a fellow laborer with Paul. Demas seemed to have things going well, but something happened. And we find out in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that Demas is no longer with Paul. And it says that Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Now that's important because not just that he fell in love with the world, but something else. It says that he departed for a place called Thessalonica. Now, if you know Thessalonica, it's made of two words, right? There's Thessalos and there's Nike. Now, Nike, we tend to know because a lot of us wear their apparel. So whether it's their shoes or shirts, Nike means victory. And that's why it was named Nike. Apparently, if you wear Nikes, you win. Not true, but that's the idea. But Thessalos. Thessalos is an important word. Because Thessalos means empty or worthless. So think about this. Demas served alongside Paul, but at some point Demas got attracted to other victories. And Demas left Paul and he went into the world to win worthless victories. He went to Thessaloniki. And I think Demas is winning. Like, if you looked at Demas, you'd be like, man, that's good. You're doing well. You're making millions. Maybe ministry. Maybe he had a mega church and it's like people were just flooding in because he attracted them with his message. I don't know what it is, but I know what it says about Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. And this is powerful. To the church at Sardis, the Spirit says, you have a reputation of being alive. You're dead. Everybody looks at you and they say, wow, that church right there, man. Boom, they're alive. They look good. Look at all those people. They dress right. They look good on the outside. They sing like crazy. They are amazing musicians, incredible voices. You guys have it going on. I mean, your hands are raised in worship all the time. None of those things are bad. Except you're dead. There's no real life there. Demas was a winner. And I want to ask you right now, I want to ask you, are you winning? Like people look at you and they say, you're winning. You're you're getting the education that you thought you should get. People approve of what you're studying. Your workplace is good. You're making the money that that, that your family approves of. You have the, the ideal home. You've got the kids. You've got whatever... You're going to come to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, and you're going to stand before the Lord. And have you done like that arrow and shot it at the wall and painted your bullseye after landing and decided that's what I'm going for? Dissatisfaction has got to be an integral part of the Christian life. Not that I have already obtained, but I press on to make it my own. This is the first part. This is the dissatisfaction. Don't worry. I've got 10 minutes, and I don't even need 10 minutes. 9.45, wow, I have 25 minutes. It's a blessing. Thank you for that. But Lord willing, I just want to make sure we say what the Holy Spirit once said. Notice the second thing. There's a dedication to the pursuit. You see the word being used here? He says, I press on. Now, that word press is used in this verse and in 14. You saw that. That's easy, right? Because it says press and press. Did you know it's somewhere else that we already read? It was in the verses yesterday, but it wasn't, it wasn't translated press. 
It's the word in verse 6 where he says, I persecuted the church. Persecute. Isn't that interesting? So when he's saying, I press on toward the goal, I want you to think about persecution and pressing, a pushing out, a, a um, just this, this squeeze effect. Because even Paul, when he was going after believers, what was he doing? He was trying to drive them out. I mean, ultimately, even part of killing them, like Stephen. But notice, the same idea is true here. He says, I press on toward the goal. This is powerful. Think about your own spiritual life. Are you taking every nook and cranny of your existence and you're just like, man, I don't want to miss any part of God's blessing on my life. I don't want to miss any part of what God's got for me. I, I want every bit of me to be transformed. And it's just like that driving out, that persecuting, not, not, not inflicting persecution on yourself, but that, that, that persecuting of sin in your life and just saying, I can't accept that. I can't accept that. I'm pressing on toward the goal. Christ is my goal. He's where my eyes are set. Is that our are we with just this, this incredible mentality of aggression against sin in our own life? Is that how we view it? He's got a dedication to the pursuit. And I love how Paul is, he just gets so intense with this. But notice, it's not just, it's not just that. So he says, I press on. But, but, but another way that that word press is used, it's also used as a hunter, so imagine if I'm hunting, and I don't do much hunting. Hudson does more hunting than me. Not just for fish, he also hunts for things on land sometimes. But when you're hunting, this word press is that idea of like being on a hunting trip. It's like you know what you're going for, you know what you're trying to trap, you know what you're pursuing, and so you have all your methods in place in order to get that thing. That's the same word here. I'm hunting. I'm pressing toward the goal. I'm seeking this one thing. I just wonder, does that really, does that describe the way that you're seeking holiness? Like today, when you leave here, are you going to go hunt holiness? Are you going to hunt Christ-likeness? Are you going to say, Lord, I want to know you. And I'm going to look for every opportunity to know you all. I'm looking for, oh, wow, you need encouragement. Yes! I can give you encouragement. Oh, wow, that person wasn't very kind to me. Now I can just shower kindness on them and know Christ in a new way. Oh, man, I'm hurting. Lord, I need your comfort right now. Show me yourself in a new way. Are we hunting for any taste of the goodness of God? Are we hunting for more of the character of Christ? Are we hunting that we might know him, the power of his resurrection? I believe if you become a hunter for such things, you will also be a finder of such things. Because get this, God loves you way more than you love yourself. He died for you. You didn't die for yourself. He died for you. And if he loves you more than you love yourself, I'll tell you something else. He wants to reveal himself to you more than you want him to reveal himself to you. But the question is, are we tuned into the frequency of God's voice? Now, notice why this dedication does not always um, happen. Like, what are some causes um, that cause our devotion or our dedication to waver? Uh, I'm not going to go through these very long because I kind of feel like we've already discussed them in a backwards method on the last thing. But here's a few things. One is when we're indulgent to sin, when there's sin in our life, we're not going to be dedicated to the pursuit. It's going to be an obstruction. Um, if we're indifferent, indifferent to pain around us, that too will be something that keeps us from, uh, from really seeking him. Like, again, when we're just indifferent to the things that God is serious about. So think about this. Like, look around your life and think, what does God really care about? Like, what is on God's heart? What's on God's mind? And the thing is, once we know what's on God's mind, then that's where we're to focus too. But if we're indifferent to the things that God cares about, how can we be dedicated to the pursuit of knowing Him? 
That's like you being a professional cricket player and like you're in training all the time, you're out competing all the time, and I say, hey, I want to be your friend, but I absolutely will have nothing whatsoever to do with the sport of cricket. Our friendship's probably not going to be that great. Why? It kind of dominates your life. How can we be indifferent to the things God is focused on? Let me give you one illustration. I believe this is really powerful, and maybe this next illustration is actually all you need for the whole weekend. I really believe that. I'm only taking it because I do have the grace of time. But please don't miss these next five minutes. I want to tell you something that changed my life when I realized what God thinks about. And when I say it changed my life, I'm not being melodramatic. My life has been different over the last two years. Hudson knows this. In fact, what I'm about to share with you, I try to share everywhere I go in the entire world. I'll share it on planes with people. Does it change me that much? You see, I, I spent a lot of days in airports. Last year, I think I was in airports 105 days during the year. I see thousands, probably millions over the course of a year, literally walking by. And I realized I didn't care about them much. I realized I didn't think about the people that were sitting next to me. I realized I really just cared about making sure I had a full stomach before my flight or had some rest or whatever and got to my gate on time. And meanwhile, all around me were these treasures. And then God taught me to play a little game. And this game changed everything. He taught me how to see people the way he sees people. Let me randomly choose somebody and I'll play the game with you. I'm just going to have to be really random here, so I'm going to go to that back, that back row, and I'm going to go to the second row in. I'm going to choose the third person over. I don't know who's sitting there. So, um, one, two. You count as a human being, so one, two, three. All right. Now, here's the beautiful thing. Usually when I choose somebody, I don't know anything about them. I'll choose somebody in the airport that's sitting next to me in a lounge, And I won't know their name. I won't know what food they like. I won't know if they're married or not married. I won't know if they've got kids. I won't know what city they're from. But after I play this short game, I will literally be sowing tears over that person. Because what I didn't realize was God's not indifferent, and there's something crazy about this individual right here. And here's what happens. Three things. The first thing I know about this random individual is I know that it says in Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. Are you ready for this? It says that this guy right here, are you ready for this? You'll never look at him the same. You'll respect him incredibly. When he was made inside his mother's womb, it says that God knit every bit of him together. You say, okay, I've heard that verse. No, hang on a second. My, my grandmother knits me these caps, and I wear them all the time. I got, it, I got it in my room. I actually had it out this morning. And these knitted caps, I mean, I wear it, like, everywhere. I wear them in the desert. I wear them in the snow. I just wear them, okay? And my grandmother makes them for um, folks that live on the streets and for her bald grandson. So we're the ones that have it. Now, something about these knitted caps. My grandmother's 88 years old. But did you know that knitted caps don't have any mistakes in them? That's not true of a lot of things. If I buy something from a factory, it might have a mistake. But a knitted cap's not going to have a mistake. Do you know why a knitted cap doesn't have a mistake? Because if you're knitting and you knit with a mistake, what happens? The whole thing comes unraveled, right? So when I have that knitted piece at the end, it's perfect. Every hat my 88-year-old grandmother makes me is perfect. And now you know what I know about him? He was knitted by God. That tells me that every single stitch of this guy, every stitch, perfectly made. He can complain and act like it's not, and God says, stop it. I made no mistake when I made you. I gave you the talents I wanted to give you. I gave you the features I wanted to give you. I gave you the weaknesses I wanted you to have. I gave you everything so you can perfectly glorify me. Doesn't mean he's sinless. We're all sinners. We're born into sin, but perfectly made. 
All right, so already, that's one thing. I'm already thinking, this person sitting next to me is pretty special, but I'm not done. Second thing I know about you, in Jeremiah 31.3, and you say, well, that's to the, the children of Israel. Oh, hang on, just go to 1 John 4 if you want. That's the same thing. In Jeremiah 31.3, it says you've been loved with an everlasting love. Okay, hang on a second, hang on. If he's loved with an everlasting love, let me ask you a question. If he's loved with it, be careful about your answer, though. If he's loved with an everlasting love, when did God start loving him? Don't say he when, he when he was born, and don't say when he was in the womb, and don't say, like, before he was born. Never. Not in time. If he's loved with an everlasting love, do you realize that God has always loved him? Okay, well, that's weird. If right now your mind's hurting, that's okay. It's supposed to be hurting. Be dissatisfied with the fact that your mind's hurting because you don't have the mind of God. You do have the mind of Christ, but we don't understand fully. All right, hang on. Are you ready for the harder question? That was the easy question. If he's loved with an everlasting love, when is God going to stop loving him? Okay, but wait. We say never, right? But... What if he rejects the gift of Jesus Christ and spends eternity separated from the Lord's presence in hell? God loves him with an everlasting love. Love demands a choice. I believe there might be someone to hear that's not saved. Let me tell you, love allows you to reject Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean God quit loving you. It means you said no to his gift of love. He loves you forever. If right now your mind's just like, what on earth? All I can say is I'm looking at this guy and I'm thinking, man, this is crazy. Perfectly made and loved forever. But I know one more thing about him. And this final thing just feels the deal where I'm like, I, 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 how can I... How can I ever be unkind to you? How can I ever mistreat you? How can I be impatient with you? How can I not, like, do you need anything? Like, you need the money I got? You need, like, it's yours. Are you ready for this last thing? I'm not joking. Jesus said, the Father said, this guy is so important to me. I'm going to send my son into this world. die for you. That's what God thinks of when he sees you. And what keeps me from this dedication to the pursuit is when I'm indifferent to what God's not indifferent about. How can I say God's indifferent about a soul when Christ died for that soul? How? Only if I don't care about the things God cares about. I plead with you, sisters, brothers, please. Let's just look at the heart of Jesus. And when we see the heart of Jesus and what Jesus cares about, let's just put our care there. I know that right now we care about so many things and our hearts here and drawn here and the world says this is important and this is... Let's just go to Jesus and say, what's important to you? Two things are going to last forever. Two things. People and the word of God. Invest your life in those two things, and you'll have a life that counts forever. Indifference. There's more on that point. If you want to know the rest, ask me later. I just want to end on the last point. We have the fact that there's dissatisfaction with the present, there's a dedication to the pursuit. And the last thing is this there's a drive. To persevere. This is where the gospel comes in. Not that the gospel hasn't been in the whole message, but there's a final gospel point here. And when I say the drive to persevere, look at what Paul's drive is. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Let's never confuse the gospel. Paul is not pressing toward the mark for any measure of salvation. Paul is not pressing toward the mark to be accepted by God. Paul is pressing toward the mark because...
Christ Jesus has already made him his own. You see, we don't pursue Christ because it's like, all right, I hope I can somehow get what he has to offer. We pursue Christ because in Christ we have everything. This is the good news. I don't wake up in the morning and think, oh no, oh no, I got to really perform today. Oh no, I got to make sure I do my three question test on every person. Oh no. I don't wake up with that kind of stress. I wake up and think, I am his and he is mine. My salvation is secure. My eternity is set. And I get to fix my eyes today on the goal and run. Looking to Jesus. The author and the finisher of my faith. I didn't begin in the spirit and now being made perfect by the flesh. I began in the spirit and I'm continuing in the spirit. It's all him. But there's a drive and my drive is what Christ has done for me. Yeah, I was with a, um, I was with a girl. In, I was with a girl. I was with a whole conference, but a girl came up after the co- in the, co- the conference, kind of like this. It was in Northern Ireland, and she comes up afterwards, and she's a 23-year-old actress, and she says to me after the message, she's like, look, I believe in the gospel, like I believe in it intellectually, but I got two problems. My first problem is this. I don't really love Jesus that much. My second problem is I don't really hate my sin that much. Now, when she said those things, I was kind of like, in my spirit, like, oh, that's terrible. And the Lord did something interesting, kind of like in a movie where, like, everything pauses except for one character, and they're, like, thinking about something. It was like that kind of moment. I know that didn't happen, but it was that instantaneous that it seemed like that. And it was like the Lord just kind of clicked pause on our situation. And he said, now, Nathan, before you answer this girl, i got to ask you two questions. Nathan, do you love me like you should? God, of course I don't love you like I should, because if I love you like I should, then everything would be about you. Okay, good. Second question. Do you hate your sin like you should? If I hated my sin like I should, I would never sin. Exactly. Answer the girl. And all that came out was, This has nothing to do about how much you love him. It has nothing to do about how much you hate your sin. It's about how much he loves you and how much he hated your sin. My drive to persevere toward the goal is never about how I performed. It's about how Christ performed at Calvary, where he bore it all, and it is finished. That's why we can be consistent You'll have doubts in your life, and maybe you're like me. I doubted my salvation for so many years. I would go to bed at night as a seven, eight, nine-year-old, and I would cry and cry and cry, wake up my parents multiple times and say, I just don't know if I die if I'm going to be with the Lord. You know what my parents always did? Something very wise. They didn't take me back to when I was four and prayed a prayer. They took me back 2,000 years every time. Took me back to a place called Calvary, and they took me back to a garden where there's an empty tomb. And they took me back to a Savior who did it right. They said, Is your faith in Him? Because He won't fail. You see, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I know in whom I believed. Not what? I know in whom I believed, and I am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. That is the assurance of salvation we have, that Christ Jesus has done all things well. And just like that trust fall example, you might have a lot of faith, you might have a little bit of faith, but the question is, where have you placed your faith? And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ to save, he will in no wise cast out. No man can take take you from my hand. John chapter 10, verses 27 and 20, I give my sheep eternal life. So, with all this being said, let me encourage us. Let's live a dissatisfied life, knowing that Christ desires to be clearly seen in us. Let's live a life where our only satisfaction is Christ-likeness, though the world might taste the fruit of abiding in Christ and realize, wow, 
This is what I've been looking for. And remember, your assurance in this whole pursuit is that Christ Jesus finished the job, he finished the work of your salvation, and is freely offered by accepting his victory over sin and death on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living. (laughs) Thank you that it's powerful. Thank you that it changes the way we see people. Thank you that it changes the way we see our lives, situations. Lord, thank you that you're living, and thank you that you desire to speak to us today. Father, I know that my heart's been convicted, and I pray that even as others have too, I pray that we would not just get up and leave this place and And go about our activities as though, okay, that was a little bit more spiritual encouragement. But Lord, I pray that we would respond. I pray that we would not accept indifference to the things that you are serious about. I pray that we would not accept compromise and complacency and comfort zones and anything that keeps us from from being dissatisfied with the groaning that's going on inside of us. Lord Jesus, may you forever be in our eyesight as we press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We pray this in your highest, precious, holy name. Amen.